Perfect. It's a gateway drug into rock. So we might lead this episode off with that soundbite. I, I have a hunch. Welcome to the Exploring Washington State podcast. Here's your host, Scott Cowan. All right. In this episode, we're going to have a conversation with uh, Leslie Moclock and Jacob Sealander. They are the authors of Rocks, Minerals, and Geology of the Pacific Northwest. This conversation is going to, uh, it's going to rock. We talk about their book. We talk about the geology of Washington State and kind of how all those rocks that we see everywhere kind of got here and their formation and we're going to crunch a few billion years of history into about a 60-minute episode. So, get ready. Listen and learn. This one's informative. This book looks like it's going to be a lot of fun. If you're into rocks, their book just released. You should pick it up and take a look at it. And if you haven't already, kind of follow us on Instagram. Follow us on Facebook. Follow us on iTunes. All those places you can find Explore Washington State. We'd love to have you along for the ride. And let's get started. All right. Welcome, Leslie and Jacob. I appreciate both of you guys being here today. But I'm going to pass the baton and ask you to tell us about your book and how you guys got started in this. Because I'd butcher it if I got started. <laughs> How's that? <laughs> well, we're, uh, you know, very glad to be on the podcast today. And um, uh, it all started when... Um, I, for about five years, was the curator at the Rice Northwest Museum of Rocks and Minerals in Oregon. Don't tell anyone. And uh, <laughs> it's, it's a short drive from Washington. And I was sitting at my desk one day and got an email from um, someone at uh, Timber Press, our current publisher, soliciting um for new authors there, they wanted to, um, expand into, um, sort of the geology aspects of natural history and, um, asked if I was interested in writing a proposal, um, to write a book. And my first instinct was, hell yeah, this is the perfect <laughs> excuse, perfect excuse to finally get to go travel around the region and uh, go see and photograph all of the cool things I've wanted to go visit for, you know, years now. Um, and it could even be a tax write-off. <laughs> so um, <laughs> I, I kind of jumped on that chance, but I, I knew the idea of taking on um, a book about the geology of the region was going to be a huge project. Um, and that I would definitely need a buddy to do it with me. And so I called up Jacob. Um, we went to school together uh, in, in grad school, which is how we knew each other. Um, and he teaches in Washington state and was basically like, yo, do you want to go on lots of cool geology adventures and write a book about it with me? And fortunately he said, yes. <laughs> Where yeah, did you I, guys go to grad school at? at U University of California, Davis. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, All right. Jacob's originally from Oregon and I'm originally from the East coast, but the, uh, the Northwest is, is really where it's at. So we're glad we ended up there. <laughs> All right. Yeah. Glad, glad to be back in the Northwest for sure. <laughs> so, so Jacob, she roped you into traveling around and doing this. Um, yeah. It didn't really take too much convincing. <laughs> okay. Um, it, All right. Like, like Leslie said, it was a great excuse to just explore all 
parts of the region that I just hadn't explored before. I mean, even growing up in Oregon, um, we really didn't spend a whole lot of time east of the Cascades. And it turns out like a lot of the really, really cool geologic stories are east of the Cascades. <laughs> and there, well, I grew up in the, I grew up on the West side of Washington state and I'm, I'm with you. I, I went to school in Ellensburg in the center of the state, but really that's about as far east as I ever went. And, and it's very different in Eastern, yeah. Eastern Oregon and Washington than it is in Western Oregon and Washington. Absolutely. It's like, I don't know, outer, outer space in a couple of spots like uh Banks Lake area to me is very surreal looking. So, okay. On with your story. I interrupted. No, that's fine. Um, so that, that's kind of how we got started. Um, and in, a lot of ways, you know, one of the things you asked me earlier was who is this book for? And and the answer is it's right. for anyone who's ever um, looked at a rock and picked it up and wondered anything about it. What is it? Where is it from? Why is it here? But it's also um, written a little bit for myself, um, for myself when I first got to the Northwest um, and wanting a book like this to exist. There are so many books about the geology of the Northwest. They're all fantastic. Um, and you know, I'm, I'm sort of humbled to be, uh, to be able to add a title to that very long and excellent list. But, um, the, there are a lot of books about stories of, um, geology in the Pacific Northwest, but it's kind of hard to find out where you can go or how to go about finding the places where you can see those stories. And so, um, a lot of this book is about how to recognize geologic objects in the landscape around you and how to, how to read those things in the space where you are, and also to get an idea of where in the state you can go if you're interested in a particular feature. It's not, a, it's not the kind of book where like, it'll tell you, you know, take Highway 97, turn left, go up this road and like there's an outcrop and look at the specific thing. But um, if you're in a particular area of the state, and you um, want to know more, you want to get familiar, you, you can start to dial yourself in or plug yourself into the local features around you and the local story around you. Um, and that uh, was a main goal for me in, in working on this book. I don't know if you have anything related to add, Jacob? <laughs> Uh, well, yeah, kind of, kind of on another selfish-ish reason. <laughs> um, like, like I said, even growing up in Oregon and doing my undergraduate in Oregon, um, I don't, I, I'm sure I had this at, at points during my education, but again, undergraduate, I don't really recall a whole lot from parts of that. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it's just nice to be able to take a region like like the one that you grew up in and then just ha have the chance to synthesize its entire geologic history and then take all of that and try to figure out okay how, how are we going to take this you know billion plus years of history and summarize it so anybody can pick it up and anybody can understand it and people can go like like Leslie was saying, find the stories in the rocks and know where to find it. And I think it's 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 cool just to have all that knowledge, I guess, um, back in the front of my brain after and, after initially learning it and then having to to do all the all the research again. Yeah. 
And speaking as a, a former East Coaster, um, one of the reasons that I found the Northwest so compelling when I first um, saw it is that uh, it's an active geological area. It's it's a place of what are called active tectonics. Things are still happening. Um, growing up on the East Coast, which is what's called a passive margin, the last exciting things that happened there happened 200 million years ago. And so there's a lot of very old rocks and you can kind of kick them and look at them and somebody tells you, well, this indicates that there was like a cool volcano and, you know, this and that 200 million years ago. Um, and you would look at all these diagrams. I would look at all these diagrams in my textbooks and sort of learn it in an academic sense and be like, yes, this means this and this means that. And then I came out to the West Coast and it was like seeing my textbook, as cliche as it sounds, come to life. Like you, you see... <laughs> the line of volcanoes, you see, um, you know, the dynamic coastline, you see the carved, um, the channeled scablands, you just like all, all of these things that were totally, um, sort of intellectual and something to memorize on a page were, were like, this is the laboratory of real life. This is real. Here it is right in front of you, thousands of feet tall. Um, and that just absolutely took my breath away. Um, and really, really captured and captivated me. Um, and so that, uh, the process of reading those stories in real life, as opposed to, um, on a paper is something that people who live in Washington and Oregon really have the privilege of being able to do. Um, so it's, it's a unique and really special place to be able to explore this kind of material. Yeah, to, to kind of piggyback on, on what you're saying there, Leslie, um, some of the, the youngest rocks in the Northeast, as you're saying, around 200 million years old. And if you think back to what the Pacific Northwest was 200 million years ago, you're just looking at an ocean. Yeah. There were... Very, very little of the Northwest actually existed <laughs> during that time. Okay. At least existed in its current state. It was all underwater. It's current state. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> It was, okay. it was waiting to get squished up onto land. Yeah. <laughs> All right. How long did it take you guys um, to do all your research? How long? How long has this process been to put this book um, from? It's been a three you know, years. First, first conversation about, to today. About three years. About three years. Yeah. About three years. Okay. Um, about a year right. of it was about eighteen months of um, field work and writing, and then. Um, some number of months of editing and then there was the sort of post-editing publishing process mm -hmm. and stuff and uh so yeah it's it's a good chunk of time well yeah i mean well but the good news is rocks are kind of um they take a while so you've got a little bit of time <laughs> so you're not 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 much is not a whole lot has changed since we started the process that's true <laughs> Well, let's let's talk about the let's let's talk about Washington State mm -hmm. and you, before I hit record we you know we're talking about a couple of places but Jacob I'm going to ask you put you on the spot sure what what are some notable things in Washington State you think people should know about that they might not be super aware of oh man I was actually just just kind of thinking about this the other day because I'm I'm just finishing up teaching actually a geology of the Pacific Northwest class <laughs> this quarter. Okay. Um, and putting together a bunch of virtual field trips. I, I, I found myself 
I keep going back to locations along Highway 20 across the northern northern part of the state between Anacortes and Idaho. Mm-hmm. And I realized that like uh, the entire or almost the entire history of the Northwest can be seen in outcrops along Highway 20. Hmm. Like in, in outcrops even from from starting in the in the San Juan Islands, pieces of the the uppermost mantle and, and lower crust that have been thrust up onto the continent. And then as you pass into the North Cascades, you get into rocks that formed at 20 some miles depth that are now at the surface. And then, so driving up, up and over the passes, you're looking at modern volcanoes that have erupted in the last couple thousand years. And then and you pa- pass into the, the Eastern side of the state on the same road and you go through a completely different kind of geologic environment that was dominated by lots of extension instead of the, the tectonic compression that's going on right now. For for those of us that don't understand what you just said, um, <laughs> extension, what, can you elaborate on that? Yeah. So if we, if we think of the kind of the broad geologic setting of, of the Northwest and, and Washington right now, uh, it's dominated by compression because j- just offshore we have the the Juan de Fuca plate that is colliding with North America, and so they're they're both being forced towards each other. So we kind of have this this dance of tectonic collision where you have two giant pieces of the Earth's crust colliding with each other, and the the Juan de Fuca plate is the, the oceanic one, and its composition is a little bit denser than North America, so it gets shoved underneath. And then induces a whole bunch of other processes that really manifest themselves best as the uh, Cascades volcanoes. Okay. Um, so when we're so that that's kind of a general description of compression, uh, and of course extension is the exact opposite, where instead of two pieces of the crust are being shoved towards each other, they're actually being pulled apart. Um, and in in this case, when when Eastern Washington was being pulled apart, uh, I'm I'm trying to think if there's a a, a one set hypothesis that's that's accepted for why <laughs> because there's there, there's a few different things um but one, one one hypothesis is that if you put a bunch of really warm buoyant material underneath the crust it will push the crust up just on, due to buoyant forces then as you push something up you start to break it apart at the surface and extend it okay so there there's there's a period of time when eastern washington was undergoing extension um, pri- okay. prior right. to modern compression and after older <laughs> compression. So I'm, I'm going to interrupt and go back to sort of the beginning of what Jacob was just talking about, this idea that you can see the history of Washington driving along a highway. Because um, mm-hmm. a lot of people, when they think of geology, they think, okay, you got to be like a rugged mountain man. You got to go, you know, climb to the top of the highest peak or you got to, you know, scale a rock wall or something. But interestingly, some of the very, very best places to see rocks um, in any place uh, are actually along the sides of roads and and road cuts um, because the, uh, you know, in the eastern, uh, sorry, in the western part of the state, obviously, it's very green. Lots of beautiful plants, foliage, moss, all growing all over the rocks, so you cannot see them at all. <laughs> um, and uh, humans and in our industriousness have like carved big roads through mountains, which re- requires essentially blasting and scraping away um, at these hillsides and exposing rocks um, over you know the past 
few decades or, or a couple hundred years. So there um, is a lot more stuff that's fresh and exposed to see. Um, so it's not an uncommon sight if you're ever driving along the highway and you see a van parked by the side of the road with um, some like 20 something people all kind of like crammed up against the rocks on the side of the road. You've just passed a geology trip um, because the, those are great places to see fresh rocks and big rock relationships on these walls that have been carved out of, um, of the mountains. So uh, looking at geology doesn't, doesn't require you to be um, like a super outdoorsy athletic person. You can actually do a lot of it from a car, although you can be outdoorsy and athletic if you want to. Um, and uh, I know we're talking about our book, but if that's something that you're interested in, there's a really great um, uh, series of books called the Roadside Geology Series. Um, and that that book is dedicated to that premise, like the what do I what am I driving by and what can I see if I get out of my car and check this out? Um, and we actually uh, definitely use that as a resource when we were driving around looking for things to photograph for our book. Um because it was a, uh, it's a looking at things on the, on the side of the road is a great place to get fresh faced rocks, basically, which is something a lot of people don't expect. Yeah, it's it, it's okay. really it's really true. Sometimes to get to the best rocks, you have to walk um, twenty feet from your car. <laughs> I, I don't know if I can do that. <laughs> no. So you're okay. So Jacob Highway Twenty, and you think it's a, a great. Uh, Cross section maybe of Washington State's um, geological history. I, I do, in in, in okay. every sense of the term, cross section. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> now that now that Jacobs claimed Highway Twenty, Leslie, <laughs> what were you going to recommend? I mean, Highway Twenty is a pretty good one. I um, can I wait? Sorry, what was the original question? <laughs> The, oh, What's an interesting, something interesting that our audience should hear about that they may, may be uncommon to them? Maybe uncommon to them. Um, well, uh, there is a geological story that is pretty well known, again, in the world of geology, but may not be quite so familiar to people who are new to um, geology, which is uh, uh, an episode in um history called the Missoula floods or the Brett's floods. And they're responsible for a lot of the landscape that you get in Eastern Washington, um, an area that's very evocatively called the channeled scablands. Um, and, uh, there are a lot of really big and remote features, um, like Palouse falls and dry falls. Um, and Jacob, I'm sure you can, uh, name a bunch of other ones because you're more of the uh, geomorphology guy. Um, but it's such a big, it's seeing things on like a, a big, but, but understandable scale. Sometimes geologists, very often geologists are guilty of talking about things that are so big that they, we call it arm waving. You're like, and this was big, that was bigger. And you're talking about things on the scale of like a hundred miles long and deep down in the crust. And it just kind of loses all, like you lose your, your place in it all. It just seems too 
out there. But um, a lot of the stuff with the uh, Missoula floods and Scablands are things that are like really big and impressive, but they, but you can stand in front of it and kind of see the whole thing and be like, wow, that's really cool. So um, if you're wondering what I'm talking about, uh, the, um, well, actually, Jacob, I'll, I'll maybe turn it over to you. Do you want to tell, talk a little bit about the story of the, the yeah. floods? Um, I, I'll, I'll kind of um, expand on what you were saying a little bit too, um, with in terms of like the scale of things that that you that you can observe, because um, a, a lot of people are familiar with say um, going to a stream and seeing little ripples in the sand at the base of a stream, and then with the Missoula floods, you could walk around these these giant gorges and be wandering around like these hills that are all fairly linear and parallel and you don't even recognize what they are until you're up on top of the gorge looking down and then you realize those are ripples in sand and sediment produced by water those are the same sort of things that i saw in that tiny little stream the other day but they're, but they're feet tall but they're yeah <laughs> they're they're yeah huge <laughs> so i guess i'm um, kind of that the, the Short Missoula flood story is during the the last glacial maximum around fourteen thousand years ago. The last um, ice age, basically. Yeah. Okay. Um, sorry, sorry, I was thinking that as LGM, but Leslie kind of has that taken. <laughs> um, but du- during during the last ice age, um, a big the, basically the. Most of northern North America was covered in a giant continental ice sheet. Um, and parts of that ice sheet had these little fingers or lobes that extended south because ice sheets don't grow as a, like a, an expanding pancake. They actually take advantage of lower spots in the topography and can grow basically like glacial lobes or fingers that extend out from the edge of the ice sheet. And one of these large fingers from the ice sheet in North America extended south into Montana kind of northern Idaho and Montana and dammed the, or what what it's today, the Clark Fork River. And in the process of damming that river, it created a giant temporary lake behind it. It's called Glacial Lake Missoula. And actually, if if you're in Missoula, Montana, you can look up at the hills above the university there, and you can see shorelines of this lake. Okay. And existed basically a bunch of parallel stripes in the hillside. And the one of the ways to get they're basically bathtub rings all around the valley uh, for, for this giant lake. Um, okay. And over time, uh, it's, it's, it's kind of debated on the exact process by which this happened, uh, but the ice dam broke and that, which released hundreds of cubic miles of water um, down the Clark Fork Valley uh, in a matter of days. And this water rushed through through Montana, through Idaho, got dammed up again in Washington, kind of near Spokane, by another lobe of this ice sheet. And then eventually that broke through, and the and this huge volume of water rushed across uh, most of the Columbia Basin in eastern Washington. And that's what, um, kind of where it gets the name Channeled Scablands, because you have this huge volume of water flowing at incredibly rapid speeds across the landscape. And it does a huge amount of erosional work in terms of tearing up rocks from underneath and creating these um, big vortices and potholes and carving waterfalls. Um, and then eventually all this water um, 
went out through the Columbia River Gorge into the Willamette Valley and out into the Pacific Ocean. And, it and this Sorry. and this happened. I I I don't I forget the exact number, but it's somewhere around forty or fifty times. Oh, that this this process. So this wasn't a one-time event. It was not a one-time event. Oh, okay. When I've heard of the when I've heard of this, I I just assumed that it was one massive event, a one-time thing. Yeah, that, that that's that's kind of one of the the fun, um, I guess, lesser-known facts about Washington geology yeah. <laughs> is that the Missoula floods were a, a basically repeat offenders and carving out the scab lands. <laughs> so how long of a period of time are we speculating this lasted? I mean, if we did it 40 or 50 times was, it was over a period of, I think three to 5,000 years. Okay. Mm-hmm. Wow. Okay. Yeah. The, um, uh, like Jacob said, the, there's still debate on exactly how the ice dam formed and broke, but, um, essentially you, you kind of have conditions that allow um, the building up of Glacial Lake Missoula to repeat itself. You have this lobe that kind of creates a dam um, and the formation of a lake, and then uh, the dam fails and everything rushes out, but it's still you know really cold and there's still a glacier and the glacier builds back out and creates that dam again. So the lake fills up again and then the dam fails again and all the water rushes back out. Um, and so uh, the water, from what I understand, mostly followed similar paths each time, but you definitely have areas that are sort of more carved than others. Um, and uh, you can sort of see different episodes in different areas. So um, looking at specific features from the floods, um, things people may not be super familiar with. If you look at pictures of some of the big waterfalls in the Columbia Basin in eastern Washington, um, the waterfall looks very tiny compared to the ledge that it's coming off of. And what you have to realize is that the reason that the ledge was so big was because during these floods, that's how wide the waterfall was. Um, and now the little rivers that are left behind are like dinky nothings compared to, you know, the like kilometer wide waterfall that used to be there. Um, but that's part of why we have this. Uh, that's, that's part of what makes the landscape so um, austere and striking is because of the, the amount that was scoured. Um, and then these just little comparative trickles of water that remain in the pathways that were carved by these huge floods. So this is kind of overwhelming <laughs> to me, and that's okay. and, and in a good yeah, way, in a, in sure, a good way. Sure. And 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 while you guys are t- talking, I am listening, but I'm also flipping through pages of your book, and I have lots of questions. Ask away. But before I start asking, before I start asking questions, though, put you guys on the spot <laughs> during your research. Mm-hmm. And Leslie, you'll go first this okay. time. Jacob, remember the question. <laughs> um, Do my best. Because honestly, when she asked, I forgot what I asked you. So um, let's, let's just total disclosure. All right. So Leslie, you get to pick one spot in Washington State. Okay. Where is the coolest spot that you, from a geological standpoint, what's one spot? That's not even a fair question. There is no. I know. 
I make up the rules. It's okay. <laughs> there is no spot in Washington that is not cool geologically. That's the problem. Yeah. Okay. Well, um, that's lack, lack of an answer is not I an know, answer. We, we get to put you on the spot. Um, coolest spot to you, to you. What's, what's the so, spot that you think is like really cool. So this is one of the things that, um, I was sort of mentioning earlier is the idea that for me, the enjoyment of geology is both an enjoyment of, um, sort of the scientific history and like, you know, what volcanic eruption caused that rock to be there and where did the basin come from, but also, um, the way that geology, uh, gets wrapped up in human history and the particular people you kind of encounter along the way. Um, so uh, when I think about um, favorite geology or, or sort of a favorite spot, a lot of it for me is related to the specific part, part of the reason I wanted to do this book, right. was to go like, go out and see these things and experience these things. And so a lot of my, fondness for certain areas comes from the particular experiences I had when going out to see them. So um, I guess this is probably as good a time as any to bring up Liberty, uh, which um, is famous for being uh, where Liberty Gold comes from, the wire gold. Um, And also, uh, if anyone is familiar with the Ellensburg Blue agates, which are found further south of Liberty, but probably come from, probably were originally from some of the basalts that are from the Liberty area. Um, so I, um, so maybe I'll talk a little bit about sort of that Highway 97 corridor, um, sort okay. of the, the Ellensburg to Wenatchee kind of area. Um, and uh, if you're ever up that way, uh, probably the first place you should stop is a coffee hut uh, that is turquoise blue called uh, Liberty Latte. Have you ever been in there? I, I, I drive by it a lot. I, I do not think it's open anymore. Oh, really? Oh. That's so sad. Okay. Yeah, I, well, I, I, that, that's not a hundred percent, hundred percent, but well, if the huts, it's looking pretty vacant. That's right now. too bad. Okay. Well, Last time I was there, maybe the hut's still there. It's still lovely and blue and turquoise. Um, yes, it is. The hut, the, the building. Okay. Well, uh, you can stop in the parking lot and across the street um, is a big road cut, kind of like I was mentioning at the beginning. Um, so if it were still open, you could get a coffee and look at some rocks. <laughs> but if it's not open, you'll have to bring Now you're coffee. talking. You'll to, that works for me. You'll have to bring your own coffee. Oh. Um, and... Um, the rocks that are across the street um, are uh, mostly sedimentary rocks. So they started out as um, sand and mud and other sediments, basically, that were in the bottom of a valley or a basin. Um, and But they are what's called intruded um, by basalt. So basically, that means that uh, magma, basaltic ma- magma underground, rose through the earth and um, erupted on the surface to, to be a basaltic lava flow. But, you know, it had to get from under to above, right? So it, it had to kind of break its own network through to the surface. And what it left behind is something called a dike um, of basalt. So basically, it's a place where this eruption came up through the ground and um, 
uh, was lava sort of trying to reach the surface and intruded through um, these sediments. And you can see the dike and you can see the sediments. And um, also because uh, during eruptions and things, um, there are a lot of uh, fluids with sort of weird um, chemistries floating around. Uh, there are some pockets in the rocks around there where you can see um, not necessarily super rare minerals, but like more unusual minerals. There's a pocket of these minerals called zeolites um, that are really well crystallized that I saw the last time I was there. Um, so it's, it's a little story. It's not even really like a um, particularly unusual or interesting story in the scale of um, uh, Washington. It's something that you it's the, the kind of story you can see in a lot of places, but it's a, a good, good, easy place to go now, sadly, sans coffee. Um, but part of the other reason that uh, I, that that place stands out so much in my mind is that um, it was the first place I went when I was trying to meet up with a guy named Rob Reppin. Have you, has he been, um, I know you talked to Nick. Uh, have you talked to no. Rob at all before? No, I have not. No. So I Rob have. is a gold miner, um, and that, that's his full time job. He's a gold miner, and uh, oh. he and he works for himself. He runs his own gold mine um, in the gravels around Liberty. So he's he's not in Liberty, the ghost town, which you know is kind of a, an interesting place to go visit the the gold mining ghost town. But he actually um, digs into the uh, alluvial sediments um for placer gold in the area and um when i was first starting this the, one of the very first trips research trips i took for this book was to this area um the the sort of highway 97 area in washington and i was told by somebody i can't even remember who oh if you're up that way you should look up rob you should look up rob Reppin. and i was like okay, who's this guy? And he's like, oh, he's, you know, he's a gold miner. Uh, you, you should just go and go up to his mine and see if he's around and he'll talk to you about his gold. <laughs> and I was very skeptical. Uh, cause if you've ever spent any time around any kind of miner, uh, you know, that they tend to be pretty, uh, territorial. <laughs> Protective. <laughs> um, you know, it's, it's very, very common for people to, for, for people who have mine workings, you know, to, to bring people along to, to show people around a mine, but only if they like know the person, if they've been introduced, if they've previously made contact. And so this, this person who was just encouraging me to like go and find this random gold miner at his gold mine and say, Hey, do you want to talk to me? I was like, okay, I should be wearing a bulletproof vest for this. Movie. Um, but, and so, uh, but, but they, you know, they were like, oh, no, 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 he just show up. He'll, you know, it'll, he'll be very happy to see you. And I was like intrigued, but incredibly skeptical. Um, one of the reasons I wanted to talk to him was because when I was working at the museum, um, I was trying to do some research specifically on the Liberty Gold that we had in our collection. And, and um, he was in theory, a person who could answer some questions about some of the specimens we had. And so I was like, okay, I really got to go talk to this guy. But like, I don't want to die. <laughs> <And> so <laughs> I stopped at 
the Liberty Latte area. One, because I it was a road cut that I wanted to look at, but two, I figured in the area like that I could ask the person who worked there if she knew this guy and you know what the what the lay of the land was so to speak and um I wish I'd asked her her name I don't remember but she she kind of gave me more specific directions to his place and gave me assurances that I wouldn't be met with a sawed-off shotgun and uh I did in fact go meet Rob and have a great conversation with him and he gave me a tour of his mind and um I got to, uh, he actually went so far as to um, help me find the site of the uh, historic Liberty Mine that was um, the source of uh, the wires that we'd had in our museum collection. And it was a place that I had tried to find myself previously and gotten like super, super duper lost, <laughs> completely unable to find before. So um, it ended up being a very... Um, fun and fruitful visit and we got to talk about uh you know forestry policies and look at rocks and mining equipment and um and it was all kinds of a good time so in addition to being um interesting from a scientific standpoint it was fun from a personal standpoint as well rob is a really good guy all right all right jacob top that <laughs> what do you got Did- I, I can't <laughs> 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 that's a great story yeah i mean I, I i can't possibly come even anywhere close to that well you're, you're gonna have to though you, you gotta you gotta so what's your favorite spot in washington for the for uh, this oh man so jake so i should a, mention that jacob is a brilliant photographer he did um quite a lot of the photography for the book we we i mean we both did i took a lot of like studio pictures of rocks but um Mm-hmm. One of the one of the reasons I called Jacob up in the first place because I was like, dude, you got to take the pictures. <laughs> so I don't know if there are any um, particular like photography stories or photography places that you enjoyed a lot. Yeah, well, so let's yeah, let's change your question to from a photography standpoint. Where's the spot that you that inspires you? How's that? Um, oh, okay. Th- this I, I can't answer. <laughs> awesome. Um, there, there are a few lesser known places in Mount Rainier National Park mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. Are, aren't necessarily the easiest to get to, but once you're there, they are incredibly beautiful. Um, I think one, one of my, one of my favorite spots that I've, I've hiked back there two or three times just because it's, it's that great. Um, is to start at the White River Campground and just keep hiking up the valley. You okay. go along the along the trail. I, I forget the name of the the um, backcountry campsite you get to after after a few miles. But if you keep hiking up, um, I think it's towards the the interglacier area. Um, not only is it just like you, you get above tree line, you're in uh, this beautiful glacially carved valley. Um, but you get to some some rocks and this one outcrop and that the space around it within about I'd say 100 to 200 square meters records almost the entire history of Mount Rainier. Oh wow! <laughs> yeah, okay. it, it's it's kind of hard to get to, but it's it's just like in in terms of wanting to to photograph stuff from a geologic perspective and just from a, a a really pretty <laughs> um, landscape perspective. It's it's hard to leave. <laughs> um, okay, but there, there's a set of um, 
much older erupted lavas from Mount Rainier. I, I don't know the name, the names of the ages of any of these particular rocks because it's a tiny little outcrop. Um, but there's a set of older rocks that erupted from Mount Rainier at some time in the past, um, solidified, and then were intruded into by another set of, of magma that was a completely different composition. And that magma solidified before erupting. So you have kind of this, this really nice just juxtaposition between rocks that solidified at the Earth's surface, so they have really tiny microscopic crystals in them, and then rocks that solidified before erupting, so the crystals are macroscopic. Really big. Uh, Meaning may, you, can, you can actually get your face on the outcrop and look at individual crystals and get out a little ruler and measure their size if you really wanted to. Um, okay. And you can, you can see right at the, the contact between the new intrusive stuff and the older volcanic stuff that um, there's a, a distinct gradient in the size of the crystals in the intrusive stuff where they were in first contact with the colder outside rock that rock they crystallized faster so the crystals are a little bit smaller then they slowly get bigger and bigger and bigger as you move away from that contact um, but then this this particular outcrop gets even better <laughs> Because it's covered in glacial striations. So when this valley was last occupied by a glacier, um, glaciers, we, we kind of jokingly call them nature's bulldozer because they, they do such a great job of just like picking up material and moving it from point A to point B without really <laughs> without much effort. Mm -hmm. um, but at, at the base of a glacier, what, what happens is all the rocks that it's eroding get frozen into the ice at the bottom of a glacier and basically dragged like really, really coarse grit sandpaper across the underlying bedrock. And what's left behind is all these parallel grooves or striations in the rock. So that this one outcrop not only has this history of volcanic eruption and then intrusion and a cool cooling history, the whole thing is covered with glacial striations. <laughs> so basically what you're so, seeing is um, that this one square little patch of earth you're seeing that the processes that created and affected it um started out deep underground like mm -hmm. several kilometers underground um and they've gone all the way up to uh today where the things you're, you're seeing the the surficial forces surficial forces yeah. <laughs> that are shaping the way it looks so you're seeing a long history of dynamic geologic events overlapping onto one another to create this one section of rock that's right in front of your face. Yeah. And I, I didn't, it, it's, there's not a whole lot of people that go there. It, it's one of the, um, I think the, the Northeast side, one, one of the climbing routes from Mount Rainier. Didn't you see um, a marmot when you were there one time though? Yeah. I, I was actually about to get to that marmot. Oh. <laughs> oh, we have a marmot, marmot story. All right. It, it's not, it's not as cool as a gold miner story, but this is, I think the laziest marmot, or the smartest marmot I've ever seen because it was a, it was a pretty warm day, but there's still some snow patches around and this marmot just like crawls out from behind a rock nearby me. Um, and then crawls up over onto the snow patch and just belly flops down. <laughs> <laughs> and it, he's just laying there on the snow patch, watching me as I'm wandering around taking pictures of these rocks and the marmots just hanging out there, probably wondering what I was doing. <laughs> it's like, it's totally unconcerned. Yeah, just a it's just totally not concerned. It's like, okay. Hanging out. 
Like you are oh obviously very well fed <laughs> for being right. this yes. far a- away from people. <laughs> Smart apartment. So as I'm flipping through here, I landed on page one seven. Okay. And that's Mount St. Helens. In case, in case you're not following along in your books at home. Just kidding. I, I have mine in the other room. <laughs> okay. So that's maybe the biggest event of our lifetimes. Right? Am I, uh, I mean, the eruption of Mount St. Helens locally? Yeah, maybe the, you would say the biggest event that people recently have lived through in, in sort of violent right. geologic event sense. Sure. So have you guys climbed around up in there? Has mm-hmm. that, what's that like to see something so fresh versus the stuff at Mount Rainier that's been there for, you know, thousands of maybe millions of years even? Uh, well, What's your thoughts on the Mount on the Mount uh, St. Helens area? Oh, I mean, it's fantastic. Um, yeah. I've uh, been fort- spectacular and fortunate to get to summit um, the volcano from the south side uh, and go. I mean, looking at anything at Mount St. Helens is amazing from any place that you're at. But if you if you ever have the chance to actually climb up to the top of the mountain and look down at the caldera and the eruption field, it's phenomenally cool um so if you if you are a, a hiker type person definitely put that one on your list um i think i, I did that but i think that was one of the things that piqued my interest in geology because like, I, okay. I, I did that hike um after finishing high school hmm. and then I, I just remember being up at the south rim of the crater and just how active it was on the inside yeah, the, like, the, like, there's this like this yeah. constant low hum of rockfall mm-hmm. inside the crater, and you're just sitting up there going like, "Wow, this was um, this was a much larger mountain less than 20 years ago, <laughs> and now I'm sitting on the edge of this crater, and it's still collapsing on itself." <laughs> yeah, it's not done. It's yeah, so it's not done yet, is it? It's still, no. it's still. Collapsing. Okay. So people it's c- collapsing and growing at the same time. Please elaborate. <laughs> um, so, so after after the main large the the, the, the huge eruption in 1980, uh, there's a series of smaller dome building eruptions that took place inside the crater, um, where basically um, other other really really kind of sticky almost consistency of peanut butter melt was erupting and formed a lava dome inside the crater. And kind of the last um, major eruption that was er, eruptions building that dome happened, I think, just about, was it 2005? I think we're just approaching 15, 16 years ago mm-hmm. okay. for those. And um, so basically after the, uh, the major eruption, you still have the, the collapse of all the loose material inside the crater that's taking place. But simultaneously, uh, the new dome is growing inside that crater as well. So if, if we give that another, say, 40 to 100 or 200,000 years, um, that lava dome has the potential to grow Mount St. Helens back to what it was previously. Okay. I don't remember this, uh, and, and nothing either of you may know either, so this one you don't have to answer if you don't know, but how much uh, elevation did the mountain lose when it, when it erupted? It's currently like 8,200 feet, and I believe it was like 10,500. Yeah, it, was, it was somewhere in the so, low 10s yeah, before so, it. So, yeah, so 20%. Yeah. I mean, well, that's quite, a bit, not, quite uh, a bit off the top. Yeah. 
Um, And if you look, so if you look at photos of the mountain immediately after the 1980 eruption and you look at the crater compared to the crater today, you can actually see it's like very visual, very visibly grown. The the crater in the middle is very visibly grown. It's much taller than it used to be. But like Jacob said, the, the walls are still collapsing. So, you know, we'll see what happens. One of the things that surprises people a lot, um, if, if people ask, you know, okay, well, you know, Mount St. Helens went in 1980, what's the next volcano? What's most likely to be the next volcano that erupts? And the answer is still not St. Helens. It's actually, um, if you look at the, the activity of the Cascades volcanoes over, um, geologic time, Mount St. Helens erupts like all the freaking time. <laughs> so, you know, yeah, oh, it does. Yeah. Okay. Um, so, you know, the other volcanoes may well erupt as well. The next one could be something else. But if you, just from a probability perspective, Mount St. Helens is most likely to be the next one to have a major eruption again. Well, let me ask you this then, just the opposite of that. Statistically, or if we're, if we're betting on volcano eruptions, what's the least likely one to go? Mm. Based on historical, maybe historical data. I mean, is that, you know, if you, if you can speculate that St. Helens is the most likely. If you give Mount me, Adams. Mount Adams, yeah. Mount Adams. Mount Adams. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Okay. Because it's, it's we'll, off we'll axis. It. Yeah. <laughs> it's, so what? it's called off axis. Um, off so axis. <laughs> if you've probably noticed uh, that the cat, if you've ever looked at a map of the um, big peaks in Washington, that they all kind of line up. Um, mm-hmm. And, but Mount St. Helens and Mount Adams are a little weird. Uh, if you kind of draw a line down all the Cascades volcanoes, Mount St. Helens is a little bit to the um, the west of the line, and Mount Adams is a little bit to the east of the line. Um, okay. And the line is there because that's when when Jacob at the beginning of this talk was discussing how um, the ocean plate, the Juan de Fuca plate, is diving underneath the, the North American plate. Um, so it, rather than thinking of plates like uh, dinner plates, like round things, um, you can kind of think of them as slabs, like a big slab of clay or something. Um, so if you take two, say, rectangular slabs and you sort of shove one underneath the other one, there's a line where they overlap. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, when the one when the downgoing plate um, kind of continues to go down into Earth's mantle, um, there is a bunch of stuff that happens that makes a lot more sense with the diagram. Basically, it causes um, that that's where lo- where magma is formed, where rocks melt into molten rock, and that fuels volcanoes. And that that those melt centers all happen in a line along the downgoing slab. And where the volcanoes are up above is where the rising magma pokes through to the surface. And so there's this sort of magma generating zone that forms in a line because of the geometry of plate tectonics. And then that rises in a line to create the volcanoes. But if you look at Mount St. Helens and if you look at Mount Adams, they are not in line. (laughs) Um, And interestingly, Mount St. Helens is super active, even though it's not in line. But Mount Adams is like really not active um, and also not in line. Well, could it be could it be because it's further west? So is that closer to movement on those plates? You have any thoughts, Jacob? I think it's so, so I'm totally yeah, speculating still, here. As, as far know, as I, I understand, it's still an open question. Exactly why? I, I, it it okay. is kind of an open question because, again, like you're saying, Leslie, like just the line that dictates where most of the Cascades volcanoes are. Um, 
yeah, I'm, I'm just trying to visualize it in my head. It's like it almost bisects a line between Mount St. Helens and Mount Adams. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, why one is more active right now than the other um, is not an answer that I know. I don't think it's an answer. Okay. Well, and that's, yeah. there's a lot of things that we are not going to have answers mm-hmm. to in this, in this mm-hmm. field. So what makes geology great? <laughs> there's always more to ask. Yeah. So f- as I'm flipping through mm-hmm. here, there's, I mean, I, we could talk for hours, which you guys don't have time for it. And that's, that's fine. Well, people should check out the book and all that, but what I, I'm looking at, okay, where was this? I can scroll back. Cause I've been flipping. I got to ask who came up with this, this, um, I know it wasn't you guys and you're just re, you're reporting on it. Uh, the, the sizes of basically pebbles and, um, where was that? Help me out. Uh, um, so, <laughs> sizes of sediment. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So, who came up with those sizes? Those seem odd to me. So, uh, bef- <laughs> since people don't have the book in front of them yet, you haven't purchased it yet, right? Um, what uh, you're referring to is that um, if you've ever heard words like pebble, sand, mud, boulder, in common terms, when people hear those, they kind of think of a particular kind of material, but those terms actually refer to specific sizes of particles of sediment. And this is Jacob's field of expertise. So I will let him go from there. <laughs> yeah. I, I honestly don't know who originally came up with the uh, size divisions and particular names, um, but it can be really, really helpful when you're observing, you know, just like either sediment that's, you know, in a pile on a beach or sediment that's contained within a, a sedimentary rock that you're looking at because the, the size of the sediment that's present and the size ranges of sediment present. Like if you have a sediment that's all one size or a huge range from really tiny particles to really big ones, that can tell you a lot about the history of that particular um, batch of sediment. Um so if, if you can imagine kind of um, the journey of a rock is like, say, imagine you're a rock up on top of, let's say, Glacier Peak and okay. you um, and you, you break off of, of Glacier Peak. Let's say let's say it's um, basically there's there's a, a fracture between you and the, the main mountain and fracture fills in with water. It freezes overnight and wedges off this giant chunk of rock. So you're going to start with a, a really, really big rock. Um, that probably has some very sharp angular edges to it. Um, but as that rock works its way downhill, so it's going to start rolling and bouncing downhill. Um, it's also going to be rolling and bouncing against a bunch of other rocks. So it's going to break into smaller pieces as it travels further from its source. And also the sharp edges will get kind of worn down. Um, and then eventually you might, as this piece of rock end up in a river, and then mm-hmm. if the river has enough water in it, it will transport that sediment further downstream. And as, as it gets transported farther and farther and farther, of course, it, it is constantly bouncing and rolling and banging off other rocks. So it continues to get smaller and smaller and smaller and more and more round. Like the sharp edges get basically get knocked off, kind of like a nature's rock tumbler. <laughs> <laughs> if you will, because that's pretty much what, what rock tumblers do. You, you take spe- specimens, you put them in the rock tumbler, you let it spin for a few days, and it basically bounces off all the, the sharp edges on a rock and polishes mm-hmm. it. So it's kind of the, the same thing 
Um, but it takes a much longer <laughs> period of time. <laughs> so, it, so if, if you're looking at um, a, a, a pile of sediment or sediments, again, in a sedimentary rock, you can uh, kind of go for that, like, okay, there are a bunch of pieces of sand-sized particles, so f- fairly small ones, but still you can pick them out with, with your eye or run your hand across it, and it feels like sandpaper. Um, th- this the sand must have been transported quite a ways from where it actually was first eroded off of a, a rock outcrop somewhere else. Um, or you can also have, have an outcrop where there are this huge range of different sizes of rocks that are all, say, angular in shape. So you have like tiny angular pieces and huge angular pieces. Um, that probably is much closer to its source than the sand because okay. the rocks haven't had enough time basically to, to get worked. And um, it's, it's a process called sorting. So we describe rocks or, or sets of sediment as being well sorted if they're all the same size, or poorly sorted if we have a huge range of sizes. And it kind of and it's kind okay. of correlates with distance from where the sediment initially formed. And this is actually really important for studying things like mountains that don't exist anymore. So when we think about mountains like the Cascades, we think, ah, oh, they're so big, they're so old, but actually they're they're really young. Like a lot of the Cascades peaks are less than a million years old. Um, and there are older um, mountains, a lot of them much further um, to the east. Oh, or, is everything okay? Everything's okay. Okay. <laughs> everything much, much further to the east um, that we can only study by studying the sediments that they eroded away into. So um, we're looking at... Uh, mountains so old that they've been worn down by time, but we can still learn about them by looking at the particles that they sort of disintegrated into. Um, in addition to learning about like the basins that they were in and all the sort of sedimentary stuff, but I'm more of a big mountain person than a sediments person. <laughs> so that's my bias. <laughs> well, you just said something the mountain. I mean, I guess once again, very lame in here. Very, very lame. Mountains that don't exist anymore. <laughs> Mountains that don't exist anymore. Uh-huh. Yeah. Um, can you elaborate on that for us? Sure. So um, if you had to guess at, so this is my question back to you. If you had to guess uh, at what the um, youngest rock in existence is, um, how old would you guess that rock is? Uh. 29, um, no, f- <laughs> 200,000 years. No, uh, the youngest rock in existence is a rock that is being formed right now. This very second, um, the process Good question. I <laughs> <laughs> so the process of rock formation is ongoing all the time. Um, if you remember third grade, you probably remember learning about igneous, sedimentary and metamorphic rocks, which are the three major rock types. Igneous rocks come from lava. Sedimentary rocks come from sand and mud. Metamorphic rocks come from rocks being buried deep underground and having a lot of heat and pressure. Um, But once a rock is formed, it's not done being formed. And I mean, there are some rocks that have sort of formed once and basically have stayed the same for millions or hundreds of millions or even billions of years. But um, rocks... Uh, rocks form from other rocks. It's a process called the rock cycle. Um, so 
igneous rocks form from lava and they cool and then they um, get eroded into little particles and can become sedimentary rocks and they can uh, be buried and become metamorphic rocks and then a metamorphic rock can melt and become an igneous rock and so on and so forth. So the, the rocks are formed by recycling other rocks. So we, we often think of rocks as very um, like eternal and unchanging still and solid features, but they're on the scale of the history of the earth. They're incredibly dynamic and they're changing constantly. Um, and so the mountain ranges that we see around the world today are, are big and impressive. And many have very long histories about how they got there, but like the way that they look today, um, especially on the Cascades is very recent. Um, the speaking about Mount St. Helens, um, the thing that blows a lot of people's minds is that the current cone of Mount St. Helens, the, the part that really sticks out above the ground is really only about 3000 years old. So like it is younger than the pyramids in Egypt. Um, and obviously it like blew a lot of its top off. Right. And is, you know, sort of in the process of growing back, but maybe it'll like blow itself up again. Um, but even for mountains that don't blow themselves up, they get eroded away by wind and water and ice. Um, and there are, um, in Washington, um, there are, it's young enough that you don't have a lot of these like super ancient mountains that have kind of come up and gone away again. But a lot of the sedimentary rocks that make up Washington started out as rocks that were in mountains in Idaho and Montana and got transported via streams and things into Oregon and Washington. Um, and so the history of these older mountains that predate the Rockies um, and the Sawtooth in uh, the east, the what used to be the edge of North America before Washington got kind of squished on there, um, can be found in the eroded remains of those rocks that are currently hanging out in Washington and Oregon. And also, there's Canadian history because, like Canada, you know, geology doesn't care about political borders, so a lot of things from Canada. Oh, come on, come on. You're so, so only Washington. <laughs> a lot of things from Canada are washed down into, uh, into um, Washington as well. Does that answer your question? It does. It, it just, it, it's, thank you for sharing that because it, it reminds me. So one of my earlier guests was a, a professor at Central Washington. His name is Nick Sentner. And he was, I don't know, uh, Jacob, have you heard of yeah. Nick Sentner? Yeah. So how do I want to say this? Just a real quick story. I, he agreed to be on the show. We, he basically said, we, you know, I sent him an email. He said, yes, let's set the time. We set the time 30 seconds before the show records. He pops on my screen, just like you did, Jacob. That's my first, like seeing you today is the first time seeing you. I had no idea where we we're going with this thing. So he goes off and he's, he's, he's telling his stories and he's, he's a great storyteller. Yes, and he, he mentions something about the enchantments and how that rock came from basically Baja. Mm -hmm. And I was like, huh? And he gives me, Oh, you're paying attention. <laughs> and he starts telling me this story. And I, you know, I never, never thought about the movement of these things. I just always just kind of assume they're static. I mean, they're mountains. They don't, 
they don't move. But that's completely yeah. wrong because they, they do move. And and you're you're yeah. you're elaborating on that story in a different way, and it's 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 really quite fascinating to hear. That's yeah, probably one of the the greatest things about geology is just wrapping your head around the this, the immense scale of time that that we're working with. I mean, there, there's some processes that you can observe happening over a, a split second. Um, and then there's other processes that you'd have to sit down and, you know, make sure you have like a, a couple pots of coffee for the next couple million years before you see any kind of change. <laughs> Two pots of coffee is not going to oh. cut it for a million years. Sorry. Just, there's just no way. That's at least like five. <laughs> yeah. At least five. At least five. So to, to wrap this up, to respect your guys's time, in, I'm going to ask you both the same question. So why don't you give us, in your own words, a brief summary of the book in what it means to you? Who goes first? <laughs> oh, um, oh, whoever wishes to oh, go first I'll, can go I'll first. Go. Okay. I'll, I'll, I'll wing it. <laughs> that's what this episode, that's, exactly that's what the show's always about. Just winging. <laughs> yeah. Basically, a, a good summary would be... Um, if if you're curious at all about geology or the natural world and you live in the Pacific Northwest or Washington <laughs> specifically, <laughs> um, and, and you 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 wonder the the why and the how, like what why is Washington a, a thing? Where and where, where did where did Washington come from? How, how did these rocks get to here? Um, the, the book's a, a great kind of primer on on geology. It's kind of like a, a geology 101 light, mm-hmm. if you will, in terms of kind of introducing a bunch of the concepts. Um, but then it, it, it goes beyond that. So if you find one little niche of geology that you're super interested in, um, say you're, you're, you get really excited about, I don't know, um, chain silicate minerals. <laughs> Um, you, you could You're definitely really dive into that. So, so I guess um, what 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 it means um, is that it's just a, a really really good resource. Okay, and and not, and not only just a, a resource, but if just like if anyone's curious and wants to learn more about geology especially with um local geology okay sure so um the uh i mentioned at the beginning of the show that i kind of wrote this book in a way for me when i first came to the northwest a book that i wish existed um but it's also um written for the, a lot of the people who would come to talk to me at the museum. Um, so I would get, I spent hours of my life. People would make an appointment or they just show up and knock on my door and say, I, I found this rock. And I just, I want, what is it? What's this rock? You know? Um, and what's like, what's all about it? Um, and so, uh, this book, um, is a way for you, if you have ever wondered something like that, to learn how to figure out um, what's this rock that I'm holding uh, and why is it interesting? Um, you know, why? I mean, it, it might be interesting to you just because it's beautiful or funny looking or you found it in a place that um, 
has other stories attached to it for you. But rocks um, have their own stories and they tell their own stories. You can learn how to read them by learning how to recognize different features and components of your rock. And so it's um, this book is basically a way to show you how to um, see and read those features and start to understand how to tell those stories to yourself. Um, and they happen at lots of different scales. They happen at the scale of mineral crystals. Um, they happen at the scale of a rock. They happen at the scale of um, an outcrop on the side of the road or um, a whole landscape um, like those giant um, waterfalls we were talking about at the beginning. And all of those stories are interesting in and of themselves. Like Jacob said, if you're interested in single chain silicate minerals, or if you're interested in why is that volcano there? Um, both of those. I, I really don't know why I said single chain silicate <laughs> minerals. Okay. I was just, I was just trying to think of like some really specific thing. <laughs> That's a very specific thing. If you want to know what it is, buy the book. Um, <laughs> and um, so Learning, geo learning how to look at geology at all of these different scales, um, you might find that your particular niche is at one or another of those scales, but you can kind of learn all about them and they all inform one another to get this, this bigger picture of what is the story. And so the way that the book is put together is it has a chapter on what is plate tectonics, it has a chapter on mineral identification, rock identification, um, a little thing about meteorites and fossils. Um, it has a chapter on rock structures. So like how to tell if your rock has been pushed or pulled or whatever. Um, it has a, a chapter on landscapes. So like, why is there a river here and a mountain over there? Um, and then the last chapter is one that's called telling story. And that's basically um, once you get really good at uh, feature identification, like being able to say that's basalt, that's a sandstone, uh, that's a cinder cone volcano, that's a, you know, whatever. Um, then the telling the story of this section is about how over um, many decades, scientists have worked together to sort of piece these little puzzle pieces and clues together into um, a bigger story. And uh, so you can kind of go back and forth between seeing the features learning about the bigger story. And then once you know the story, knowing how to look for those features when you're out and about in the landscape. Um, and it's, it's uh, a reference book, it's a field guide. So it's not something that you're meant to like sit down and read straight through, but it's something you're meant to be able to have with you. And so if you look at something and you're, you're curious about it, um, you can use the resources in this book to figure out your way in so that you can learn more. Um, sort of at your own level of interest and at your own pace. And there are also resources in it for, um, you know, if you want to, if you're suddenly struck with the desire to become a geologist, like how to do that. If you, you know, want to go out and collect rocks, um, uh, how to find the people who can help you do that. And so it's, it's supposed to be kind of a gateway drug into rocks is the idea. <laughs> Perfect. It's a gateway drug into rocks. We might leave this episode off with that soundbite. I, I have a hunch. Um, where will people be able to find the book? 
uh, great question. The um, you can buy it online wherever books are sold. Um, no, for serious, you can okay. buy it at like Target.com and Barnes and Noble and Amazon. Um, I uh, personally am a fan of indie bookstores, um, and so if you are not familiar with um, a website called IndieBound, I N D I E Bound, dot com, it helps you find bookstores that are local to you. Um, and if they don't carry the book, you can order the book through that bookstore. And that's a way to help support your, um, local beloved bookstore business, especially during these pandemic times when a lot of these smaller businesses are struggling because they lack foot traffic. Um, but really if you're like an Amazon prime member and you want to get your free two day shipping, you can go that way too. (laughs) One last question for both of you. So the book's launched, so you've you've released it to the wild, so you're done. Um, what's next? You're gonna write Second another edition. book? <laughs> Second edition. <laughs> well, so you know, it's interesting that you say that um, because learning to get to a place with this book where we could say it was done, um, you know, I I felt like I it's the kind of thing that you could keep working on forever. Um, cause there's always, there's always, well, we could include this, we could go out and do a little more, <laughs> like there's, you know, there's so much in it, but there's so much more we could have talked about. And so getting to a point where it's like, okay, this is good for now. This is a good book for now. And everything else we'll put in a second book later. <laughs> um, okay. so yeah, my, 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 my spouse jokingly called it writing a second dissertation. Yeah. Yeah, for <laughs> sure. Okay. Um, um go ahead. Well, I, I have not asked you guys the normal questions that I normally ask of, of people, but so I'm going to ask you both two mm-hmm. questions. Has, was there any spectacular failures in this book? In other words, you thought this would be really cool to do and it just didn't work out with regards to this book. That's question number one. And question number two, in all your travels around Washington state, where was the best place you grabbed something to eat? Mm-hmm. Well, for the failures, um, there were some circumstantial, like things related to circumstances. Um, There were some trips that I wanted to take that ended up not being able to happen because of like life conspiring to get in the way. That's not really a failure, but it was disappointing. Um, And, uh, but I guess one of the things that I wish, um, we'd had time to do more was put in more maps. Um, I, uh, some people find maps like really, uh, confusing and daunting, but I like love maps. I love maps so much. (laughs) And this book only has two of them. Um, but, uh, it turns out that doing, a project on both Oregon and Washington, number one is extremely ambitious in terms of the amount of material that you need to cover. And number two, um, they uh, getting the data for a lot of these things involves going through um, the state resources. So basically the state departments of geology um, and uh, their maps and the, the information they have available. And um, both Oregon and Washington have those, but they, focus on very different things and um, organize their data in very different ways. And so the process of trying to come up with um, cohesive data upon which to base maps um, 
across state lines in a way that was both accurate and made sense uh, ended up being just too tough. Um, it was okay. uh, something that I worked on quite a bit um, and basically just got like lost in a sea of spreadsheets that never saw the light of day. It was very disappointing. <laughs> um, yeah, I think when, when I, um, Leslie, when we were going back and forth after I'd, I'd kind of done one of, I think, I don't know, 20 rough drafts of a geologic map of Oregon and Washington combined. Yeah. yeah. Um, mm-hmm. Just we, we, we kept running into that um, same problem over and over and over. So, so okay, that's that, maybe the next project would be to make, because there, there's so much, you know, geology that crosses state lines, but like that, that encompasses the whole of the region. But because of this political boundary and this like way that politically we deal with our data there, it's, it's so hard to, to make them a cohesive whole. So maybe that's like the next great project is. The, the, the Oregon geologists are not funded to work in Washington and the Washington geologists are not funded to work in Oregon. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So how about, okay. So then part two, that is when you were out doing your, your research, where, where was a memorable meal? Where was a great place that you, you stumbled across? Hmm. Liberty, yeah, Liberty I mean, coffee. Liberty coffee is my story, man. <laughs> but um, the, I mean, the thing is, with I know, at least when I was out and about, usually you'd like pack a lunch and take it with you, right? But um, oh, see, <laughs> the, the so one of one of the things when you're with a bunch of geologists who are out on a field day, uh, you can kind of get a little bit of like clout with if whatever lunch you bring is like the least like a field lunch so like if you bring a sandwich that's very boring if you bring like sushi you made that morning that's very cool <laughs> so, on dry eyes so that it's perfect temperature i don't recall the names of any of them but i've, I've had some really really good tacos at food trucks in cashmere mm-hmm. oh yeah, yeah. Oh, I can't remember the name. There's there's yeah, a couple I, of them. I, I, have, never, that are I have phenomenal. Never been disappointed. Fruit stands. Okay, I yeah. will say all of the fruit stands in um, like the Yakima, oh, yeah. Chilean area. Man, those were spot on fruit stands for me. Yeah. Right. <laughs> all right. Well, well, thank you both for being on. This is this is enjoyable, and I'm I'm looking forward to listening back to it when we when we get it edited. Right. And. Okay. Uh, I, I wish you guys all the best with the book. I'm I'm ex- I'm excited to pick up a copy for great. myself. Thank you so much. Great. Yeah. Thank you much. This would be great. All right. <laughs> Have a good one. All right. Take okay. care. Bye bye. Join us next time for another episode of the Exploring Washington State podcast.